personally, I'd like to dedicate this year in memory of a dear student and someone who I was close with for since the year we made uh, Aliyah on our sabbatical 14 years ago, Zachariah Haber, uh, or as they called him in, in Israel, Haber, uh, who's the child of American Olim, um, who was a student in the Gush. By this point, he's already been in reserves. He was married, 32 years old, with three children, uh, who was killed yesterday in Gaza. Uh, some of you may know the Haber family from Ramat Shiloh, Ilan Haber, that's his nephew, uh, who's a friend of mine since we were in high school together. And uh, Dafka, because of that connection of uh, his uncle and my old high school friend, uh, so when I first came on sabbatical 14 years ago, and was learning in the Gush. So Zachariah was one of the people that I really connected with. He was uh, a brilliant young student, uh, full of life, friendly, warm, sweet, unbelievable midos. Uh, and uh, it's really just a devastating loss uh, they're all devastating, um, and this one uh, I feel particularly connected to. So the Torah should be uli nishmato. In that vein, our topic uh, is about Kaddish, um, and um, I specifically uh, wanted to speak about uh, the issue of women and Kaddish. And this is the first of a two-part series. We'll continue with it next week uh, regarding the overall issue of women in mitzvos. And uh, we've done that in the past. Each year we try to do a few topics in this vein. So this year, two topics that we've never previously discussed, Kaddish this week, and then Tzitzis and Talis uh, next week. Okay? Um, so what I'd like to do is first give a little bit of a background about where Kaddish comes from in general. How Kaddish became part of the Tefillah. Then the history of mourners Kaddish. The early discussions from a few hundred years ago about women saying Kaddish, and then uh, the most relevant practical part, the issues that have you know, taken place in the last few decades uh, in the modern era, contemporary era, about women in Kaddish in our current uh, social milieu. So if you take a look at your source sheet, and I apologize, I forgot to number the sources, but uh, the first two sources are some of the Gemaras. There aren't that many, but there are some Gemaras, and here are two of them, which just make reference to the idea of Kaddish, and I highlight these Gemaras for two reasons. Uh, first of all, because they talk about the incredible power uh, and potency and spiritual energy and potential spiritual blessing uh, that uh, <coughs> participating in and answering a Kaddish can be. So, for example, in the first source, uh, this is part of a story. I just gave you a brief snippet, but it's part of a larger story of one of the Chachamim who was walking in one of the old ruins of Yerushalayim and Eliyahu Hanavi, uh, chanced upon him, and uh, one thing led to another, and as part of their conversation, Eliyahu Anavi tells this uh, one of the Chachamim that if the people gather in Shul and in the base Medrash and have a minion, and they're saying, and people answer, Amen, and the whole community that Seaboard answers, so this is something that makes HaKadosh Baruch Hu very, very happy. He feels very, very good, and God, so to speak, says, Asher HaMelech, Shemakalsen Oso, Babeso, Kach, you know, it's like uh, a parent, you know, who, who he hears his children saying nice things about him, like it's great nachas. So Kaddish Baruch Hu is also like a parent, and he feels very happy when he hears his children um, saying Kaddish. Uh, we'll get to what Kaddish means in a second, but just briefly, the second source I gave you uh, on Gemara Shabbos Kofiates, a similar idea, but specifically for us, if we should keep us all in mind, the Gemara here, a very famous Gemara, says anyone who answers, Amen Yehei Rabbah, which is, of course, what the rest of us are doing, right? The Chazin and Davening is saying Kaddish. But the rest of us are answering Yehei Rabbah, or Amen. So anyone who, de- who answers that, Bechol Kocho, which I think does not mean screaming as loud as you can, although there are people who think that that's what it means. Uh, and it's not, I'm not saying it's wrong to be loud, but the issue here is not screaming as much as Kavana, right? If you're talking and not answering, that's the worst. Uh, 
if you're not answering and just staring into space or daydreaming, it's also bad. And even if you say it, but, you know, kind of wishy-washy, that's not the best. The best is to say it with real sincerity and real intentionality. That could mean that you raise your voice or not. But if you say, Bechol Kocho, says the Gemara, Koren lo Zardino. Even if you had a, uh, God had already decided something bad for you, he'll rip it up. And he'll open up the uh, the gates of Gan Eden for you. So whatever all those things mean, I'd want them, right? These are sound like good things. So listening to Kaddish, answering, sounds like a very, very good thing. So number one is I give you these two sources as our introduction because you, sh- you see the power of Kaddish, something that can often be overlooked. Number two is I highlight the fact that in both these Gemaras you don't see the word Kaddish per se, but Kaddish in the Gemara is just referred to as Yeheshmei Rabbah. Why is that? Because that's actually the essence of Kaddish. Everything that comes before it and everything that comes after it is the introduction, and then the, you know, it's like a lot of things in life. Sometimes you, you have to work yourself up to say the big thing, and then you don't just leave after that. You know, there's a polite way to, so to speak, end the conversation. So that's the beginning of Kaddish and the end of Kaddish. But the whole purpose of Kaddish is not the beginning or the end. The essence of Kaddish is that one line, Yeheshmei Rabbah. Now why is that so important and what is it? And the answer is you, may, you know it even better than you think. Not only because you've heard Kaddish your whole life in shul, but because the words of Kaddish, and specifically that phrase, is Aramaic. Now, you may not be fluent in Aramaic, okay, but it's actually just an Aramaic translation of Baruch Shem Kavod Machusol Yolamvad, which we're all familiar with from the Shema. Baruch Shem in Aramaic is Yeheshmei Rabbah, let his name be great and exalted and praised. Baruch Shem Kavod Machusol Yolamvad, let his name be exalted and praised forever and ever. It's a straight Aramaic translation. So, that idea of praising God, that is the essence of Kaddish. Everything else is details. But the essence of Kaddish is coming together in public, in a minion, and praising Hashem, and not doing it just as an individual, which of course we're always able to do in our own language, but praising God as a community um, and in public. Now, from the Gemara, you have no sense whatsoever of when you would say this, why you would say this. There's no indication necessarily from this Gemara that it's part of our davening, certain stages of the davening, the Chazan says Kaddish. So there, take a look at the third source. You have a, a pre-modern source, not an ancient source, but the Aruch HaShulchan, but he's one of the earliest ones who gives you a little bit of the history. And basically, again, for the sake of time, I'll paraphrase most of it, the third source, but what the Aruch HaShulchan says is very fascinating. He tells us in the first line that Kaddish became assimilated and basically became part of the standard davening services in the aftermath of the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. So if you read, a, if you get one of these children's storybooks and has a little picture of Moshe Rabbeinu shuckling and saying Kaddish, mm, that didn't happen. That's an anachronistic. They probably also put a black hat and a garthal on Moshe Rabbeinu. That also didn't happen, but I don't want to go there. Uh, let's just say fashion was not always what it is now. That's not bad or worse. It's just they dress differently. Uh, anyway, but in the kids' books always somehow you know make everyone look exactly like they look now. Um, anyway, but. Um, Kaddish became part of davening in the aftermath of the destruction of the base of Megdash. So it's a long time ago, but it's not the first generation of Judaism. Right? It's an early stage, but not the first. And the Archa Shulchan explains very beautifully, if you see where it's underlined, Very, very beautiful and profound idea, which I don't think most of us would appreciate week to week, day to day in shul. When the base of Megdash was destroyed... When the Jewish people were initially sent into the Babylonian Gullus, the diaspora, sent to Babel, you know, Yushalayim, the whole Israel is ransacked, the base of Megdash is destroyed, 
and we overlooked the fact that it wasn't just a building with bricks and stone. I don't know, I don't know exactly a number, but it, minimally thousands and thousands of thousands of Jews were killed. And they didn't just ask nicely to leave. As you know, our enemies don't usually do that. And if they did ask nicely, we wouldn't have left. Right? They killed us. They tortured us. They defeated us. They ransacked Yerushalayim. They sent us into Golis in chains, literally walking uh, to Babylonia in chains from, from, from Yerushalayim. So it was a tr- aside from everything else, aside from everything else, it was a tremendous chil Hashem. How could it be? If God is so mighty, you can defeat Him, you could de- destroy His chosen house. If He chose the Jewish people so that He could just be destroyed, if this is the chosen land, it can be ransacked. Don't look so good for God. Is he really true? Is Judaism really true? Is God really all powerful? It looks like a, it looks it looks bad. No different than Simchas Torah. Also, I the first uh, I think it might be the second or third speech I gave after Simchas Torah, but it was the first one I gave Shabbos Bereishis a week later. I think it was in that speech, and I've done it. I said quite what happened in Simchas Torah was a massive chil Hashem. The idea that such a thing could happen, and of all places, the, the Holy Land, right? That's a chil Hashem. One day, maybe, somehow God will, at the end of history, somehow explain to us these things. A lot of things we have questions, although we don't understand. This is clearly now going to be in the list. As I have said, whether there's Judaism for 10 more years, 100 more years, or 1,000 more years, we will never forget what happened on Simchas Torah. And it's on, the, it's on that list now of dark days in all of Jewish history. I'm not exaggerating. A lot of little things that happen, but this is not one of the little things. This is a major one. So we'd like to understand a lot of bad things that happen in our history. We now add this one to the list. But it's not just what happened to us. It was a chil Hashem. Did such a thing could happen? So, says the Aruch HaShulchan, one of the original examples of that was the Beis HaMikdash first being destroyed. So, the fact that the Jewish people, despite that, despite everything, are willing to still come together in shul, still remain loyal to their faith, still proclaim publicly as a, you know, not just timidly and private and embarrassed, but publicly, in a shul, loud, with people there, a minion, etc. Yehei Shvei Rabbah. Despite everything, despite the way it looks, despite what the enemies are claiming, God is great, God is true, we believe just as much today as we did yesterday, that's a Kiddush Hashem. That's a Kiddush Hashem, that we remain resolute in our faith, despite everything that happens. Right? So that is, and that is, says the Aruch HaShulchan, that's why the Chachamim were metakein, that we should say Kaddish is part of davening. I bet most of us didn't know that. That's really, really powerful. That's really, really meaningful. It's not just stam. Anyway, so that is Kaddish in Tefillah. Why we say these parts of davening and that part of davening, this is not our topic at all. But this is the idea of Kaddish as becoming part of the institution of Judaism. Again, the essence is Yehoshua Rabba, which is proclaiming, it's an act of faith, it's a declaration of faith. Yehoshua Rabba. And the fact that we do it in Shul started off as an antidote for the Chil Hashem of the Chorban. Step one. Adkan But we yet have not yet seen what this has got to do with death or avelus or mourning. So that comes in an incredibly surprising source in the next source on the sheet, source number four. If you haven't heard this yet, it's good that we're all sitting. This is surprising, shocking, and I'm telling you in advance, bizarre. But I lift the veil, I hide nothing from you. There is no uh, behind the curtain, there's nothing else but what I'm going to share with you. This is the origin to the most perhaps well-known, am I wrong, am I exaggerating, is maybe this or Shema? I mean, what is more well-known in all of Judaism, the Kaddish? People are completely distant from Yiddishkeit, but the Kaddish 
and it has this mystical, magical, you know, connotation. I'm not trying to remove any of that from you, but where does that come from? You might, the average person might think, I don't know, maybe uh, Hashem taught it to Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, the, the 11th commandment is Kaddish, I mean, that's, it has that kind of impact, you know, on the psyche of the Jewish people for, for, for many, many, many generations. Where did it come from? As a mourner's Kaddish. Not as part of the davening, I'm talking about a mourner's Kaddish. So the origins are a very bizarre medrash, which is brought down only really in the time of the Middle Ages, in the Rishonim, and in the in Ashkenazic lands. Now obviously it's spread, including obviously the Sephardic lands. But the medrash was first brought into and popularized in some of the Rishonim from Germany, from Ashkenaz, in the Middle Ages. And the, maybe the most famous example is the Orzarua, which is your next source, the big source there. And the story which he tells is of Rabbi Akiva. The Rabbi Akiva. The Rabbi Akiva. Who was once walking. He's walking down the street, Rabbi Akiva, minding his own business. And all of a sudden he sees a naked man walking towards him. Now this man isn't just naked, which would already grab our attention. He's black as charcoal. Not his skin color and natural pigment. He's burnt. Not only that, he's carrying some huge and heavy load. So you got this naked, burnt man, abnormally discolored and disfigured in black, carrying this huge burden. And he's running. He's running super fast. He's running like a horse. He's in a rush. So Rabbi Kiva is Rabbi Kiva. He says, stop! And the man listening because he's Rabbi Kiva. And he says to this person in the middle of the second line, what are you doing? Who are you? What is this job that you're doing? What's going on here? If you're a slave and your master is being so cruel to you, tell me and I'll make sure to free you. I'll help you, says Rabbi Kiva. Third line, and if you're just so poor and it's some of your financial situation that's given you such a situation, uh, a pathetic, uh, you know, you're so, you're, in, you're so destitute, tell me. And I'll help raise the money. I'll help you. So this is none other than Rabbi Akiva with unbelievably gracious and kind and compassionate response to this otherwise scary, uh, pathetic looking man. But he doesn't appreciate Rabbi Akiva's kindness at first. He says in the middle of the third line, back to Rabbi Akiva, please, please, I'll talk veini. Don't, you know, you're making me late. Stop talking to me. I'm running behind schedule. If I don't finish and do my work soon, they're going to double and triple my work. What does this sound like? You can imagine this has been a slave in the pyramids or in the Holocaust, right? The person, even someone's trying to help him, but he's so traumatized by whatever's happening to him, he's just petrified. It can only get worse. You can only see the possibility of it getting worse. So Rabbi Kiva is like shocked. Next line. Amr, he says to him, Now Rabbi Kiva realizes this is even worse than he imagined. Like, who could it be? What, what's your situation? You're so petrified, you can't even, even imagine accepting my help. So the person responds, and here we have it underlined on the fourth line. This man that Rabbi was having this whole conversation with is a ghost. He's dead. Rabbi Kiva sees a ghost. He sees this black, burnt man who's being tortured. I thought ghosts were white. <laughs> and he is totally dead, a ghost. Ubachol yom v'yom, the man tells Rabbi Kiva, 
Shochem osi lachtov eitzim, v'sorfen osi behem. You know why I'm so burnt? You know why I'm so black? Because every day I have this huge job to chop down wood. And then they use that wood to make a huge bonfire that they burn me in. Day after day after day. That's my torture. That's my Gehenim. Amr Lehi says, Rabbi Kiva is like, whoa. Now if it would be me, I would just run. Rabbi Kiva's interest and curiosity is piqued even more. This seems like a Gehenim of Gehenim. This is not just Stam. This is real hell. So Rabbi Kiva says to him, what could you have done so bad in your life? What sinning ways did you have? What immoral life did you lead that you're punished on such a terrible level? You have such a torturous, painful Gehenim? So the man responds to him, This is, it's worth coming just for this line because it's so instructive and profound in its own right. Says this man, what is so terrible? What did I do that was so bad? I was a tax collector. But, like Sheriff Nottingham, I favored the rich and I abused and took advantage of the poor. So just as a side point, not our topic. But the answer wasn't, you know what's so terrible? I'm a Chal Shabbos. I didn't eat Mahadrin. <laughs> I didn't always put on tefillin. I wasn't Sanua. I didn't keep Tarsam Meshpach. All those things are important. I'm not trying to be Mazalzal in any of them. God forbid but it's worth considering what the Medrash is telling us. What's the thing that is so bad? To take advantage of the poor, to favor the rich in an unethical way. That deserves this eternal damnation. He's terribly, terribly punished. And Rabbi Kiva doesn't argue. Rabbi Kiva doesn't say, oh no, that's not so bad, I'll defend you. And Rabbi Kiva, oh, if you're, <laughs> you're getting what you deserve, taka. So then Rabbi Kiva says, and this is the part we're getting to now, Underlined, five lines, six lines down. Maybe you heard Epis uh, from some of the people who are in charge of you, the angels up above. Is there anything you could do to get yourself out of this canon? Is this eternal damnation? You can never improve your situation? You can never get out of it? So the person says to him, again, at this point he's had enough conversation. Rabbi Kiva, leave me alone. They're going to make it worse for me. i got to get back to work. But I'll tell you one thing. Here's the last two lines. This is where we're. This is all of what we've been doing until now. Is for this. Shamati, he says. I, I heard there was one thing that could help me, but there's nothing I can do about it. If this person, meaning me, the ghost, this dead man, he didn't have children evidently, but if I would have had a son who could have come to shul on a daily basis and been the chazan and said baruchu, right? Baruchu is also baruchu. Blesses, right? It's a Lashon of Bracha. Baruch is the Chazan leading the community who respond with the praise of God. The words are different, but thematically it's the same. It's a public sanctification and praise of God's name. So says this ghost, I heard that if I had, if I had left a son who would go to Shul and would say Kaddish for me, in of Hashem O Yomar, Yiskadal, and this son would say Kaddish for me. And afterwards, Yeheshmei Rabbah Mivarach, everyone would answer Yeheshmei Rabbah, Miyad Matirnos Yeheshmei Aparnos. That would have gotten me out of this right away. But Nebuch, I don't have that, and therefore I'm stuck. I don't know if you meant for 12 months or forever, but I'm stuck. You can't help me. This, ladies, is the source of mourner's Kaddish. So, you digest for a moment, you can process 
the bizarreness of the story, Rabbi Kiva meeting the ghost, but the salient principle that we pull out of this, I think we can understand even without the, the drama of the story. And this is what we need to go forward with, which is similarly to the idea which we already saw, how Kaddish became part of the tefillah service, because it's a declaration of faith, even in a time of crisis, a person could be excused after the base of Mikdash. A person could be destroyed. A person could have been excused after Simchas Torah. They said, what am I going to daven for? This is what happens when you daven? We get a Simchas Torah massacre? We get a base of Mikdash destroyed? Obviously there's no one to talk to. Who could blame such a person to respond that way? To the Holocaust, to any tragedy. Personal tragedy. And, and despite the personal tragedy, despite the national tragedy, still a person comes to shul, still a person says, Yehesh me rabba in public, and not just, in this case, having a child who leads, not just a person who's in the shul answering. This is a person who's leading, who's inspiring, who's being mezaka, the whole shul, the whole community, to say this incredible, incredible uh, thing, an act of Kiddush Hashem. If someone were to do that, that's an incredible, incredible thing. That is an incredible merit for the parent. Because a child, just like on a national level, a child also... Again, there's time. Yes, there are times where a person dies at a ripe old age and had a wonderful life. And even then it can be painful for a child. And there are plenty of times where parents die young or they had a lot of pain at the end, had a hard life. Death brings with it questions. Normal, natural questions. And therefore, if despite the questions, despite the difficulty, despite the pain, a person still is not only willing to go to shul, but to lead the community, to be the chazan, to say, Kaddish! Ah, what a son that person left behind. That's a schus for the mother, for the father, for the parent. That elevates the neshama. Again, we don't exactly know what these means. We're speaking in metaphor here, obviously. But that elevates the neshama out of whatever else it might be suffering from in the next world. <laughs> this, of course, is where you have the expression, which probably many of you are familiar with, uh, at least for my parents, if not my grandparents' generation. And that is when people would have a son, they would say what? A kadashol. I have a person to say Kaddish for me. That's this source. Because the, the ghost said, Rabbi Kiva, I heard that if I had had a son who would say Kaddish for me and be a chazan, it would have helped me. So this is the idea of Kaddish. If you take a look in the base Yosef, the next source, that's Rabbi Yosef Karo, writing obviously very authoritatively now hundreds of years later. He writes that this is the source. He quotes the little story with Rabbi Kiva and the Makoshes Eitzim, the guy gathering the, 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 the wood. Alzeh Pashat HaMinhag. And it's based on this, that it became a minhag of saying 12 months. Okay, I, I don't want to get, we don't have at all time to get into the issue of 12 months. And I'm not discussing now siblings and other things. And what about for children, and for siblings and for spouse. All those things evolve, but after the fact. The original sources are what I've described you, and the original purest form of Kaddish is what a, a child, a son would say for a parent. And, and Ashkenazic custom, you see in the next source, the Ramah says, similar idea, Kishaben mispalel berabim. And this is like, now we understand what those words mean. It's a public sanctification of God's name. It's a public Kiddush Hashem, because Kaddish is a public declaration of faith. So that's every one of us in the shul who are answering Yehishmei Rabbah are joining the declaration of faith. But the Chazan, the one who's saying the Kaddish, who's the leader, he gets the schus of all of that. And if you had a child, a son like that, that's poda aviv imo min ha So this is the origins, this is the source. Again, perhaps a more modest source than you might have expected, a more bizarre source than you might have expected. But ladies, this is it. This is the source of the idea of there being a mourner's kaddish. Yes, quickly. Um, just to 
question. Or is the Gemara? He says, yeah, this is bizarre Medrash, which again is quoted by other sources as well. He didn't make it up. Okay. So this is the idea of Warner's Kaddish. We now understand the concept, and we also know that going back to ground zero and the origins of the concept of Warner's Kaddish, who said Warner's Kaddish? Sons. Men. And as far as I am aware, until the 17th century, so again, still 300 years ago, but we're talking already a pre-modern era now. There's been a lot of Judaism until you get to the 17th century. As far as I'm aware, there's no literature anywhere, no source that discusses whatsoever the idea of a daughter or a woman saying Kaddish. And I would assume that the reason is because it didn't dawn on anyone to do it. I think it's very reasonable to say that silence is itself an indication that no one was doing it, no women were doing it. What happened to change everything in the 17th century? That is the second to last source on the page. The Chuvas Chavos Yoyer. Chavos Yoyer was Rav Yar Bachrach. He was one of the Gedole, Gedole Hador, 17th century in Germany. Various different communities in Germany. And he writes there, right in the first line, that he got a Shaila from other Rabbanim. Right? There's different types of rabbis. There's rabbis like me, who hopefully know enough to answer most of your questions. But I'm a rabbi with lowercase r. But then there are the big rabbis. The rabbis with the uppercase r, who the rabbis ask the shilas to. You want to know who's a big god or who's a big posseg, don't see who all the balabatim are lining up. It could be that that person's a big posseg. But the better indication is, when the rabbis don't know, who do they go to? So Rav Yar Bachrach was that kind of rabbi in his generation. All the rabbis in Amsterdam had a shaila. And said, who's the God of Lador? Let's send our Shaila from Amsterdam to Germany. And asked the Shaila to Bachrach. What was the Shaila? What happened? What was fatumaling in Amsterdam at that time? The following story. There was a person who passed away who had no sons. But he had daughters. So he left in his tzava that he wants, he's willing to pay and support the community that for the whole year after he dies, the 12 months, they should gather every day in his house. He'll pay. People will come together. A million of men will come to his house. They'll learn in his memory. The second line, and after the learning, Tamar Habas Kaddish. Then the daughter should say a Kaddish. Maybe they dive in the Marav there too, I'm not sure, but he mentions learning specifically. And his daughter should say Kaddish's memory. That was his request in his last will and testament. The rabbis at the time... Initially, the Rabbanim allowed it. But I guess, I can only imagine, I'm embellishing and speculating, but it doesn't take much of a creative imagination to imagine that somebody must have gotten upset. Somebody was a frumma. Uh, it's allowed, how do you know? And at some point, the Rabbanim like, Ooh, maybe, talk, maybe we made a mistake. We don't want to just be saying it's on us. Let's see if we can hang our hat on a bigger rabbi. So after the fact. They send the Shaila to the Chavos Yar, to Rav Yar Bachrach. What, is it right? It's wrong? What should we have allowed it? We shouldn't have allowed it? What's the story? So I'm summarizing here in a few lines a whole tshuva. But the bottom line is, he starts off by saying as follows. Logically, and he gives the history, tells you the history from Rabbi Kiva and the ghost and the whole thing. It says, logically, 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 there should be no difference between a son and a daughter. Zero, he says. After all, in essence, if you're doing this thing for your mother or your father's neshama, what kind of mitzvah would we call that? What are you doing? If you do something for your parent, what do we usually call that? Kibar Aveim. Isn't a daughter obligated in Kibar Aveim? Of course she is. 
Or we talk about this as a public sanctification of God's name. What do we usually call that in Hebrew? What mitzvah? Kiddush Hashem. Aren't women obligated in Kiddush Hashem? So he says, whether it's Kiddush Hashem or Kibra Ve'em, Mali Ben, Mali Bas, there should be no reason to distinguish. But. Underline part, second line. Even though I agree with you, I can't give you a strong, convincing proof why this is wrong. And obviously women are obligated in Kiddush Hashem, da, 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 everything, etc. You're right. And even though it's true that you'll tell me the story of Rabbi Kiva was, was a man who said, if I had a son, right? we saw the word, he said, if I had a son, didn't say if I had a child, if I had a son. So says, Rabbi, you're like, eh, that's not a proof either. Because again, logically, what should be the difference, a son or a daughter? He says, they're both beloved, they're both the same child, they both have Kiddush Hashem, they both have Kibbutz Aveim, it should make a difference. Look at third to last line in the middle, Mikom Akom, I still am against it. Why is he against it? Yeshvara the... Uh, sorry, end, end, of the, end of that line, excuse me. I'm against it. Why? And all the minhagim will become kechuka v'atlula. Says the Chavos Yair. This is the first, the most authoritative tshuva we have on the topic. And the first reason why someone might be against women saying Kaddish. Not because it shouldn't be effective, not because there's a real good reason per se, but because we can't look at this question in isolation. We didn't just land on the moon, create this new thing called Judaism, and now ask, hmm, should we have daughters saying Kaddish or not? We have already hundreds of years of minhag, of tradition, of Masora. And as I speculated, he's clearly confirming, until anyone asks him this, Shiloh, there's no written record of a, of a woman saying Kaddish anywhere. No one didn't have daughters? No, but no one, have, no one ever wanted this. We, don't have, we have no indication of it ever happening. This is the first time we ever have a Shiloh on record. I can't, no, you can't prove a negative. But there's no indication this ever happened. It's clear, says the Chavos Yair, writing the 17th century, that for hundreds of years, the Minog has been, only men say Kaddish. Why did it happen that way? He doesn't know. But Kacha, that's the Minog. So what will happen if all of a sudden now, in the modern era, i.e. 17th century Germany, if now, Pito, we're going to change this? Even there's nothing wrong per se, but you can't look at it in isolation. Judaism is based on tradition. Judaism is based on minhag. And if we'll pull out this one thread, the whole quilt will come undone. Potentially. I'm not saying for sure, but he's saying there's what to worry about. We'll pull out one brick, maybe it's the wrong brick. Maybe the whole wall will come tumbling down. Because what happens? If you tell people who grew up their whole lives, and everyone they know, their fathers and their, and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers, everyone only knew one reality. This is how you didn't do things. This is how we do things. And now all of a sudden you say, well, you know, really we could, uh, I'm smarter than all they were, we could do it differently. What you're doing subliminally, whether you realize it or not, whether you intend to or not, says the Chavos Yaris, you're going to weaken their sense of loyalty and obedience to Menhagim. Well, if we change that, maybe we could change the next thing. Maybe the next thing after that. It is, as you may have heard the famous phrase, a slippery slope. Who's going to know where to stand? And instead of the next person saying, I'll only do it if the Gadolador gives me permission, as he says it, the next time, the people will decide on their own. Well, if they did it in that case, it was allowed, so this also makes sense to us. And everyone's going to start doing their own thing, and the whole overall sense of traditional Judaism is going to come tumbling down. You're convinced, you're not convinced. Right now, I don't care what your opinion is. I'm just telling you what he said. This is what he said before there was a feminist movement, before there were progressive issues. This is what he said a few hundred years ago. This was his concern, and this was the original psak.
Okay? And he admits, he admits, he has, no, he has no other reason to be against it, but he's worried about the meta rate. You can't, again, it's, it's, it's imagine, again, just, I'm not trying to be mazazel in it, I think it's actually very persuasive in some sense. But just to give you an analogy, right? If you went to, uh, you had something wrong in your stomach or something, or your leg, if it was a serious thing, it's not enough to just say, well, the cardiologist said this, or the gastroenterologist, gastro, the guy said this. I, I'm not a young person. I mean, how does this, I have a whole body. You don't want them just to fix the one thing. You know, the, the, the knee bone is connected to the hip bone, connected to the thigh bone. Right, there's a system. You can't just look at one thing in isolation. You have to see how things impact other things. And you have a person of this stature, who other Rabbanim from other cities are sending Shilas to, he says, from where I'm standing... I feel like even if this might be the right cure for what's bothering you in the stomach, but it could throw your whole body off kilter. It could t- bring down the whole wall. That is his concern, okay? Let's try to quickly move ahead just so we get a broader picture. Another reason why some are against it, or a similar idea, just to fast forward, just to give you a sense of how this spread. So the last source on your sheet is from the 19th century. We've just jumped 200 years, and we are jumping worlds because we're now in Baghdad. Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, the bottom source on your sheet, the Torah Lishma. Also a similar Shaila. Echad lo ben, ki He had one, I don't know how old she was, but over Bas Mitzvah, he had one daughter. And also, he, before he dies, he leaves a tzava that he wants 18 people, Chai, they should come and they should learn in his house, Zohar and Mishnayis for 12 months, night and day. And each time after the learning, he says, the daughter will say Kaddish. And he says, second line, and this is not Stama daughter. She was a Lamdanit. She was a learned daughter. 19th century Baghdad. She was learned. She knows Tanakh, he says. Look at that. And they want to know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Should they follow this person's last will and testament? Should the rabbis do it? They shouldn't do it, etc. So he says in the middle, I'm not gonna, he says, I'm not going to elaborate because I think it's so obvious. Tzarech limchos biyada. Don't allow her to do it. It's not allowed. Ki ikka bezeh chashash takala he has a slightly different concern. Also seems to agree that per se there shouldn't be a problem, but he's concerned with a different problem. Not the overall issue that the first source we saw, a real meta concern, that the whole Judaism and minhagim and tradition, tradition, right, that, that's a big thing in Judaism, even before further on the roof. Right? It's an important thing in Judaism. So the, the first source we saw was worried about that in the meta sense. He's interested in a more local problem, which is that people get confused. Kaddish, you're in shul, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but you're paying attention, you know this is a mourner's Kaddish versus a regular Kaddish? Kaddish is Kaddish! And once you hear a woman saying one Kaddish, he's worried, people might think, oh, a woman can say another Kaddish or two. But the Kaddish that's part of the davening, that needs the chaza, not a mourner, that has to be a man, just like the chaza has to be a man. See, he's worried we're going to get confused on that level, he says. He also says, look at the bottom, he wrote, Maybe she'll come into the men's section to say Kaddish. So, these are new concerns, slightly different than the first ones we saw. But the common thread is, it's more external issues. It's never the issue per se, but other important values, important enough that they're against it, but side issues. Okay, turn over the page. One more issue which you will find in the... Uh, now this is a 20th century. Piskei Uziel was the first Rishon Litzion, the first Sephardic chief rabbi of the state of Israel. Starting in 1948. The first chief rabbi where Ashkenazic chief rabbi was a Herzog and the, from the United Kingdom originally. Uh, and then Piskei Uziel, Rabbi Ben Sion Meir Chai Uziel, who was the first Rishon Litzion. 
So we're in the mid-20th century, this is certainly a modern source, but he's not discussing issues of feminism and women's roles, he's not getting into any of that. Well, that we'll get to, don't worry, before the shear ends, we'll get to that. Don't you worry. But he says a different thing. And I think this is also interesting, but v- and a little bit closer even to a more inherent point, if you will. He also, again, everyone, I, I started off with the Chavos Yar from Germany and Amsterdam, not because he was the first, because you see something fascinating, which often happens in halacha, everything in the last 300 years, in a certain sense, is responding to him. And for the most part, everyone agrees with his basic assumption. What was his basic assumption? That there's nothing wrong per se with a woman saying Kaddish. That all the benefits, all the upsides of a woman saying Kaddish should be exactly the same, no more, no less, as a son or a man saying Kaddish. So, so far, everyone we've seen agreed with that, but they're still against it for other reasons. So Rav Uziel was also against women saying Kaddish, but he says something very fascinating. He says, yeah, you're going to tell me that logically, 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 this makes sense, because if a woman is obligated to keep out of vain, just like a, a man is, a boy and a girl, a son and a daughter, and Kiddush Hashem doesn't, you know, women and men. Yes, but what are you doing? What do you keep on doing, Rabbi Gottlieb? What do you keep on doing, women of Kilar You're thinking rationally. You're thinking logically. Now, usually that's a good thing, right? We believe in Judaism and in life, and Allah going to be rational and logical. Says Rav Uziel, yeah, but there's one problem. Is there anything about Kaddish that's actually logical? It's not illogical. It's illogical. That is to say, we're not talking about logic and rationality here. Let's go back to the source. We're talking about ghosts. Can you tell me, says Rav Uziel, does anyone really understand how ghosts work? In all seriousness, we're talking about things that have in the afterlife. Burning the shamas, elevating the shamas, redeeming the shamas. Is anyone in here who wants to tell me they understand what that means? Does anyone really understand? Don't feel bad. Rav Uziel was one of the Gedolei Hador in the 1940s, and he says, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. This is Kabbalah. This is mysticism. This is beyond us. So it's, you're making a categorical mistake. You can't apply laws of logic and rationality to something which is inherently irrational. So we get, imagine, imagine someone in science, you, you go to chemistry in ninth or 10th grade, or even you're a PhD in chemistry, and you learn, I don't know, or, some, or physics, you learn some rule, E equals MC squared, or the law of gravity, and you come up with a whole reason why it makes no sense. They look like you're an idiot. It's like, it doesn't make sense. It's just the rule, it's just the reality. Why? You get, you, once, if you understand the internal mechanism of gravity, then you can manipulate, you can predict. But there's no external logic you can impose on gravity or any other rule of nature. Well, if that's true, but the natural world, says Ravuziel, it's also true, but the metaphysical, supernatural world. This is a thing. It's a spiritual, metaphysical, afterlife, after-death thing. That the neshamas can suffer, and that somehow Kaddish, Baruch Hu, being a chazan, can redeem and elevate the neshamas. I don't understand it, but I believe in it. But if I don't understand it, I can't start figuring out ways to apply it. So he says, all we can do is throw up our hands and say, what was the origin? The origin was the story of Rabbi Akiva. And what did the ghost tell Rabbi Akiva? If I had a son. Logically, should it apply to a daughter? Yes, but don't go into logic. Because maybe logic is irrelevant here. And therefore he says, you have to throw up your hands. We don't know. You have to realize what we're, we're not in logic now. We're in Kabbalah. And Kabbalah is like an internal system, like chemistry is a system, like physics is a system. It's an internal system. If you understood the rules, you could figure things out. But if we don't understand the rules, you can't start giving svaras. You look like a fool. So he throws his hand. That's a third reason. Again, so he's admitting logically it should make sense to do it. But how do we know logic is relevant here? 
Now, all of this is what I would consider three examples of, I could give you many other sources, of the majority view. But already for hundreds of years, there's always been an alternative competing view. So take a look, for example, at the next source. The Shvos Yaakov. This is the 18th century. He was a Rav originally from in Prague. Then he was in Worms in Germany. And he was also asked such a Shaila. Somebody who left a daughter who should say Kaddish in the house by a minion. And he says, no problem. He says, this is what was being done in Prague. This is what was being done in his community. Women were saying Kaddish, but he writes in parentheses, not in shul. I think it would be right for a girl to say Kaddish in shul. But a private minion in a house at the Shabbaton, in the hotel, a private minion, not in a shul, says, this is what's done. Someone doesn't have sons, they have a daughter, she says Kaddish in a private minion. A hundred years later, the next source, the Chuba Meava, Rabbi Lezer Fleckles, he was the chief rabbi of Prague in the 19th century. And he attests that in Prague there is a minog kadmonim. So it predates him, he says. It didn't just start in the 19th century. It wasn't some modernish 19th century minog. How far it goes back, I don't know. But he says there's already a minog kadmonim in Prague. We see it in all the different kloizen, all the different shtibels. What would happen? They would see, he said, they had a minog. Every day there would be men and women, elder men and women, the retirees, the pensioners. They didn't go to the lev to do exercise. They didn't go to the matnas. They didn't volunteer in other ways. This is what they do. A molgaven, once upon a time, they would go to the kloiz, they'd go to the shtibel, they would say to him. And then, what would be the minog? Someone who didn't have sons, only had daughters. Five or six years old young girls would come and they would say Kaddish. But in a shul? No, we wouldn't do such a thing in a shul. But outside the shul, in these private minyanim, we would do it. Okay? So we see that there is a tradition in a number of sources. But what is the limiting factor, even the monks who are allowing it? It's never in shul. And the context is always what? Someone who didn't have sons. We do not have any source whatsoever at this point that would indicate somebody who had, I don't know, five children, three boys and two daughters, but just like the son should say Kaddish, the daughter should say Kaddish too. Let alone if they're over Basmith. We have had no source of that at all. Okay? But this is the pre- our generation, pre-contemporary record, more or less. Let's skip ahead now. We have 15 minutes left. Let's skip ahead to the, the final part you're all waiting for, which is the bottom line in the 20th century, in our generation. So there are many postkim. i only give you one here. There are many postkim who basically feel like good Orthodox Jews. Nothing's changed. Nothing does change. The majority view was always that girls shouldn't say Kaddish and certainly not in a shul. And therefore, there should be no reason to change that Whatsoever. So I give you one example of that. The Tzitz Eliezer. Great postlake from Yerushalayim. Didn't die that long ago. It was the postlake, among other things, of Shari Tzedek Hospital. One of the Gedolei Ador in Yerushalayim, Ashkenazi postlake. So he writes there, based on earlier sources, that even if people ask for it, and even if they have only son, that doesn't matter. We don't allow a girl to say Kaddish. Even if she's single, certainly if she's married, Khalila, he's worried about Kolisha and Shul, and maybe they're going to want to say uh, Barchu, and they're going to have women's minyanim, and Bezman Hazeh, he says, the last part of that source, Teshchichi Pritzusa, nowadays we live in a very immodest generation, and therefore we have to be even more worried. Ein lasos kein afilu b'minyan bebeso. Even in a private minion, he's against. Even in a private minion. He seems like he's worried about Tznius issues, Kolisha issues. The men are men. And we stick with our minhagim. Okay? This is, I only gave you one source, because I didn't want to have like a 10 page source sheet. But there's other, plenty of other people who say the same thing. Nothing changed, it's all the same. However, in America, at least in particular, there was a prominent minority view. And this goes back to pre, or certainly early after Holocaust uh, Jewry in America, 
the Godel Adora before anyone ever heard of Moshe Feinstein was named Rav Yosef Eliyahu Henkin. And his grandson was Rav Henkin, Yehuda Herzl Henkin, who just passed away not long ago, whose wife is Rabbanit Henkin from Nishmat. But the grandfather was Rav Yosef Eliyahu Henkin, the big, big Godel, first in Lithuania, then in, in New York. And in one of his tshuvas, he has, if I had, it would, uh, we could have spent a half an hour just reading his whole tshuva, because it's actually a master class. And I'll give you the introduction, which is where we get to the, the rubber hitting the road in his conclusion. He points out, and this is something that I try to say whenever I sit with Avelim, men or women of any age, and I'm usually basically channeling his tshuva because it was so influential on me 20 years ago when I first learned it. He says, you have to understand, again, we don't really understand how Kaddish works. We're talking about in the, in the world of the souls, right? So a little humility for all of us. But to the extent that we understand anything in this inner system, so he says Kaddish is a piece. But don't become so uniquely focused and obsessively and myopic where you can only see one thing, Kaddish, as if that's somehow a magic pill that nothing else can do like what Kaddish can do. So the idea is, which we already saw, that the children are extension of their parents, and if they do good things, that elevates the parents' neshama, because the parents deserve a shtuckle credit. They raise them right. So Kaddish is what? It's not a magic potion. It's not heebie-jeebie. Again, we don't really understand it, but we can at least a little bit as we said, it's a public declaration of faith. Yeheshmei Rabbah, God is great. And who's saying that? Not just anybody. Some who just lost their mother, some just lost their father, a child, son. You still say Kaddish? You still show your faith in Hashem, even at the hardest time in your life? That's unbelievable. A person who could have a child like that, a sibling like that, a spouse like that, even in their most painful time, still proclaims their faith? That's a schus for the neshama. However we understand it. But says Rav Hankin, you know what else is a schus for the neshama? For the same reasons doing chesed in memory of the deceased. Being a chazan, not only Kaddish, being a chazan. Chesed, and the fourth thing he says is, tzedakah. I take it back, I'm sorry, not fourth. Kaddish and the chazan is one. Uh, chesed is two. And learning. Learning Torah. Tzedakah, learning Torah, chazan. says they're all, however we understand them, they're all trying to accomplish the same thing. That the person who's left behind can still, even in these painful times, is doing such wonderful mitzvahs. That is a, a merit. Just like, again, Lahavdil, we should all live many years to get, together to be healthy. If someone would meet one of your children or see someone in your family who's doing good things, it looks good for you. That We call that nachas. Not just you feel good about it, even if you never heard about it. But someone's going to have a higher opinion of you when they see the way your children behave. Makes sense. We understand that. So on the metaphysical post-death world, it's the same idea. So says Rav Henke, first we should understand it's, it's a part of a puzzle. And he adds, and this is the point I want to emphasize, he says, in his opinion, of all the things I mentioned, Kaddish is the smallest and least important. It's not being mezazel in it, it's important. We should say Kaddish if we can, of course. But people who become a sugar a whole year, 12 months, I'll never miss a minion, they make the whole family a sugar, I don't want to miss a mariv. But did they open up a safer the whole year? Did they give any tzedakah? Because there's a certain magical, mystical power and attraction to Kaddish. But he says, tzedakah and learning Torah and chesed are all more important than any Kaddish. So I'm telling you this, I, I swear to you, on the non-existent stack of Bibles in front of me. I say the same thing to men. I'm not just saying this to you because you're women. I say this the same thing to men who are going to say Kaddish. But don't lose sight of the fact that there are other things that are more important. And I would say to women as well, even if you're not going to say Kaddish, don't think you can't do anything for the neshama. You have all the other things you could do, the learning and the chesed and the tzedakah, 
which are even more important anyway than the Kaddish. It's not like you can't do anything for the Neshama. You can do the more important things. Maybe you can't do the Kaddish. So we've seen already a lot of opinions say no. Now with all of that Ahakdama and introduction, says Rav Henkin, where I have it underlined there, says Rav Henkin, Im habas tavol hispalel be'ezras noshim, v'takshif ma'aseha be'kedushas Shabbos, v'kashras, v'tara, etc. Utsnius. These are the more important things. And she wants to say Kaddish b'fnei ha'noshim in the women's section, at the same time as man she'omrim Kaddish in the men's section. Efshar she'ein kepeda. I could be okay with it. I'm not going to champion it, but I'm not necessarily against it. What is he saying? If anyway she's doing the right thing, again, don't pull out Kaddish as if it's this magical pill. Anyway, this daughter, we're talking about daughters here in the, in the case, the daughter is living the life the way she's supposed to as a nice, from traditional, erlich, honest, menshlich person. All of which are giving tremendous zechiyos for the neshama of the parent. And she's anyway doing the main things. And she also wants to say a Kaddish, as long as it's in the women's section... He's okay with that. So first of all, you have on record someone who was unquestionably one of the Gedolei Hador in our era saying that there is no problem with that. He's not necessarily pushing, he's not advocating it. But he's saying he doesn't think there would be a problem. Now, here's an interesting twist. Why is it that he's so emphasizing this idea it has to be from the women's section? Did anyone here think otherwise? And the answer will shock you. If you take a look at the next two sources, this is a gift I got, whether they realize it or not, from my in-laws. My in-laws gave it to my daughter, excuse me, my wife, excuse me, my wife, my wife who, whether she realized it or not, gave it to me, or at least I took it from her. This is authored by Joel Walowski. And I looked this morning at the inscription. I thought it was a gift to my wife, which I would have felt better about stealing. But then I see it says it's to you. It was inscribed to you and dad. But I guess you gave it to her and she gave it to me or I took it from her. Like, who could remember? But anyway, wonderful book. Joel Walowski, a friend of my in-laws for many, many decades. He has a whole book about women in Jewish law, and he has a chapter on Kaddish. He lives in Yes, and I made Aliyah. Anyway, so he tells a story, which I'll quote in a second, but he's quoting Rav Salavechik here. Okay? Right below that, you have Rav Moshe Feinstein. Okay? Between the two of them, is there anyone in American Jewry, other than maybe Satmar, who did hold of one or two of them? These are the two most important rabbis, certainly in the non-Hasidic world, for 50 plus years at least, in America. And it's not just that they both allowed women saying Kaddish. They both gave testimony, testimony, that it's not a newfangled, modernish American thing. They both say testimony that in Europe, in Lithuania at least, in Lithuania, I'm not saying Hungary, but in Lithuania at least, it was not uncommon for girls, for women to come in to say Kaddish. But here's the bigger Chiddush, here's the radical part. Moshe Feinstein says the same thing as other Salvagic. What did they used to do? They would come into the men's section to say Kaddish. They stood in the back. Now, you want to know why? Who wants to tell me why? There was no women's section! Nachon, we've come a long way. But they didn't say, well, because there's no women's section, she can't come in. Ramay Shafaisin adds, also, Nebuch, sometimes I see this, uh, again, if you, most of you probably go to shul during the week, but especially in the American shuls, right? Sometimes, you, very rarely, but sometimes you have poor women who are collecting. So the men come into shul. The women would never do that. They sit out in the lobby. They usually get less. I, Dav, could try to give more. Demet, not only because they, they have less access, but I just figured, Nebuch, Nebuch, how many women are willing to go out and collect in public? A woman who's willing to, that shows how desperate that is. There are many women who need the money who won't collect in public. And there's a certain innate sneeze and embarrassment that women would have to do such a thing. So I, oh, even when, they, when a woman knocks on the door, which it happens could be once every few months, it's not often the women knock at our door. I always give them more. Because I can't even imagine how desperate that situation must be. 
So they both testify. Ramosha says about the women who has come into the men's section to collect. The modern young Israels in America now, where the women don't come in, they just stay in the lobby and the outside, they're from the shuls in Lithuania. In Lithuania, the women used to come into the back of the men's section to collect. And Ramosha finds, she says, and they also say Kaddish at the davening. And Rav Salvechik says the same thing. Rav Salvechik, this is what, what, what Rabbi Lewalski was quoting him, there used to be a student organization for college students, Orthodox college students, I think it was called Yavna. So this is already now in the 70s. So now you have issues with feminism and, the, and the, the women in their 20s in college, it's all fermenting, and they want to say, like the men, they want to say, so they asked the student advisors, Rabbi Lewalski, Rabbi Lewalski called up Rabbi Ezra Bick, so as long as she live and be well in Ash'al and Shemot for many years, many decades, one of the big rabbis in, in the Gush Yeshiva, who's a close student of Rav Salvechik, and Rabbi Dr. Walowski says to Ezra Bick, I'm giving them all their titles, they were all a bunch of 20-year-old college guys at the time, mm-hmm. but he says to Ezra Bick, and he asks Rav Salvechik, should we allow the girls in the Yavna programs, imagine it's the NCSY or some other youth group, can we allow them to say Kaddish? And Rav Ezra Bick reports that I asked Rav Salvechik, who said, I heard when I lived in Vilna, I went to the shul that was known as the Vilna Goyen shul, and the women used to come in and say Kaddish in the men's section. So certainly, certainly all the more so. Now you understand where Rav Henkin is coming from. He's Lithuanian. He's already trying to make a tikkun. saying, listen, now we have women's sections. It's not a good thing that women are coming to the men's section. He wasn't a fan of it. It's better as long as she'll be tzanua and she's in the women's section. She's dressed appropriately, she's acting properly. Nothing wrong with the women saying Kaddish in the men's section. Now she, Rav Henkin says... Women's section. In the shul, excuse me, thank you. Rav Henkin mentions that she should be saying it when they're saying Kaddish. It's not clear 100%, but it could mean, it could mean that he has in mind only if there's a man saying Kaddish. Rav Bick says he asked Rav Salvechik, who felt that at least inherently he couldn't think any problem even if there's no one saying Kaddish but the woman. That's really the sensitivity of Kolisha. Do you think it's Kolisha if a woman saying Kaddish or not? Is that a singing voice, not a singing voice? And Rav Salvechik didn't think it was. Now, it happens to be, most women that I know would not be comfortable being the only voice in Shul saying Kaddish. And therefore, whenever I've been in shul, and I knew there was one who wanted to say Kaddish, either, most of the time, there is a man saying Kaddish. But even if there isn't, I'll go over and ask someone quietly, will they please say Kaddish? Because I know there's someone in the women's section who wants to say, and I don't want her to feel uncomfortable. I don't want her to be uncomfortable, also I also don't want the men to be uncomfortable. I think it's, in most cases, people, both sides of the mechitz appreciate that someone else should be saying it. But inherently, is there a problem? Salvechik doesn't seem to think so, and Ramosha Feinstein doesn't mention it either. So just, I'm going to take three extra minutes, so we have five minutes altogether. Okay? All of this, which again, I think it's, to be perfectly honest and transparent, as we have been, it's not the majority view. But it's clearly far from an isolated or renegade or radical view either. You're talking about people like Rav Soloveitchik, Rav Moshe Feinstein, and they're telling you that it's not even a new thing, that this was Mkubal in Lithuania. Again, maybe it wasn't true in Hungary. You know, maybe it wasn't true everywhere in Lithuania, I don't know. In Rabbi Wolowski's book, he mentions that he spoke to another colleague of the Yeshiva Flapush, Rav Zelig Prague who's very from, my mother will tell you, he's very from man, from the Mir Minion in Brooklyn. And how he talks about how the Mir Minion in Brooklyn, the elder, the Zikanim of the Mir Minion in Brooklyn told him that in Mir in Europe, women would come in to say Kaddish. So this is clearly a much more common, at least in the non-Hasidic world, a much more common thing than we might have thought. I still am willing to say this probably was the minority view, the minority practice. But a legitimate one, I think it's clear. Now let's finish up with the last part of this year, which is that we don't live in Lithuania in 1950 or 1930 anymore. We live in America or in England or in the, uh, Yerushalayim or Beit Shemesh in the 2000s. And the world has changed for better and for worse. And one of the things that you all know, which we're not going to dwell on now, but we know it, 
is that you have, for better and for worse, in my personal opinion, it is both better and worse, we've had the feminist revolution over the last two generations, or whatever exactly you want to, however you want to date it. And that has impacted the Jewish community, certainly the Orthodox community. The non-Orthodox community made a very easy impact. They just accepted everything. There's no resistance to anything. So there's full equality between men and women. Okay, but we're not conservative or reform. In the Orthodox world, as you all know, this has been a 50-year-old tension. We can allow, we can't allow, we can expand the role, not expand the role. So how does Kaddish fit into that? So basically, you have had two opposite reactions. One reaction, I give you just as an example, but I've heard this from others. The second to last source is Yechel Yisrael. That's Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau. You should live and be well. The chief rabbi. The father of the current chief rabbi, but the former chief rabbi. The Rabbi Lau of Holocaust survivor fame. Very sweet, nechmad person. He's not an extremist by any stretch. He's totally against women saying Kaddish. And he specifically says, now I'm more restrictive than I might otherwise have been. Given the agitation for the expanding role of women in the ritual services and in the davening, I'm more worried than I would have been otherwise that if I allow this, who knows what it could lead to. What does that remind us of? It's a modern, updated version of what? Of the first source, of Rav Bachrach. He's just applying the 17th century now to the 20th and 21st century. He says explicitly, Nowadays, this is going to come from minyanim and other things. Who knows what's going to happen? They're going to become chazonim. It's We won't be able to control this. You give them you know, an inch, they're going to take a foot. It's going to be a disaster. Therefore, we have to circle the wagons, be more conservative, more traditional, not allow it. Many, many years ago, I was in Riverdale. We still live there. There was a bris, the Riverdale Jewish Center. And Rabbi Willig, Mari Varabi was there, and I was thinking, I was giving a shear on this topic. I said, what do you think? You would allow it or not allow it? And I knew Rafalvichik allowed it in Lithuania. He says, I know, but we don't live in Lithuania anymore. And I'm against it. Gzeira Atu feminism. So Rabbi Willig himself, who might have been 20 years, 30 years, 40 years earlier, more lenient, Dafka, because he felt, and his assessment is that there's a bombardment and attack on orthodoxy. Araba, button up the hatches, be more resistant. Okay? Our last source is the last on the sheet, Ode Yosef Yisrael Benichai, a very, very sad history of a sefer. This is Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik, who had a grandson in Chicago who passed away, Yisrael Yosef, and he did a sefer. Uh, right, so he did a sefer in memory of his grandson, Yosef, uh, Yisrael Yosef. And in the 32nd chapter, Simon Lamed Beis, he discusses the laws of Kaddish. It's a safer I have at home. This I do own. I didn't steal that from my wife or my in-laws. This one I bought with my own money. Um, and he, at the end of his piece, quotes the Chavos Yair, tradition. And he says, now we have all this agitation for other things. So if it's really, really allowed, you have to give it to them. You have to. On the contrary, if you always, just think about it as a parent. If you always say no, eventually there's going to be a rebellion. It's going to be much worse than you can imagine. Now, sometimes you have to say no. But we can't get into the habit that we reflexively say no, even when we really could say yes. Right? Sometimes, you know, certain parents are like traumatized by a particular child sometimes, and they're so used to saying no because taco, there's good reasons to say no, that before the kid even finishes asking whatever he wants, you've already said no because you're always used to saying no to that child. Even though maybe this would be a thing you should say yes to, and as a parent, it would be much smarter to say yes to because you've got to give them a little space. You've got to give them a little oxygen. So Ravon Salvechik, again, this is not exactly Ravon Salvechik, was Nishtazoy uh, modernist, wasn't a progressive. He says here, in the, where it's underlined, 
He says, if he calls the Haredim, he doesn't mean Haredim the way we use the term now. Me, I'm a Haredim. He means Orthodox, traditional. If the rabbis, the Orthodox rabbis, Yimnu, Isha, Milomar, Kaddish, Shishna, Efsharut, if something that would be permitted. Now, again, you could tell me you think it's prohibited. But he's going with the approach of his older brother, of Salvechik, and of Moshe Feinstein, and of Henkin, and a long tradition in Lithuania that does allow it. Especially from the women's section. He says, if we're still going to say it's an usher, even though we could allow it, if we keep on saying no when we could say yes, we're going to be pushing people out of orthodoxy. There's so many times you have to say no. And if Aaron Salvechik was pretty conservative. He wasn't a fan of women's minyanim, he wasn't a fan of partnership minyanim, all sorts of things. He would have said no to, because he has to. But here we could say yes. Here there's firm basis in halacha. We're still going to say no. So this is a complicated question when you're dealing with a complex you know, societal movement like the feminist movement, which again has all sorts of good and less good aspects to it. How does, tradition, or how does something like orthodoxy, which is grounded in tradition, how do we react to the shifting you know, sociological and contemporary... Uh, uh, you know, not a simple question. And you can see good people. Rabbi, uh, is a person better than Rabbi Lau? These are all good people who mean well, who've done a lot for Kalei Israel. But they don't necessarily see the situation the same. If our salvation can I allow reach exact opposite conclusions about how to handle this contemporary uh, problem. So uh, there's a m- much more I could even have said on the topic, but we have, alas, run out of time. In case anyone's wondering, halacha la in our shul, I would allow it, uh, based on my rebbeim. Uh, but I can't say the same for every shul in Ramat Chemish. And therefore, you might want to check before which show you're going to uh, before you start saying Kaddish. I wouldn't want anyone to get in trouble. And if you do, do not blame me. No, I didn't say you have to. No one said you have to.